0: This week's episode is brought to you by Wink. Now, I hesitate to reveal this to you all, but I am a distinctly unclassy person. Wine, in particular, has always mystified me. But thanks to the fine folks at Wink, I no longer have to be such a day classy A Fellow. They will curate fine wines for you based on your responses to a simple questionnaire and ship them right to your doorstop at fantastic prices. Now I can pretend to be a far classier person than I actually am and impress all my friends with my sophisticated wine tastes, and you can too. Wink is offering listeners for the podcast a $22 discount. Just use offer code HISTORYOFJAPAN, that's one word, HISTORYOFJAPAN, at checkout, or use the link at my website, isaacmeyer.net. Check it out, have a bottle, and crack it open while you listen. We can be classy folks together. History of Japan podcast, episode 279, The Prince of Thieves. This week, I want to focus our attention on a rather interesting historical figure, a man who, by most accounts, may not have actually existed. You see, he only shows up in one place in any detail, a collection of stories called the Konjaku Monogatari-shu, which roughly translates to Tales of Times Now Past. We've talked a little bit about this collection before, though never in any substantial detail. It is a collection of what are called Setsuwa, stories from the oral tradition, which was compiled sometime in the late Heian period, so about a thousand years ago or so, though the oldest manuscript we have for it is from the late Kamakura period, so only about 700 years ago. That manuscript has only 28 volumes. We know there were originally 31, but the last three are lost though the content can be partially inferred thanks to references to the missing works in other texts. Those 28 volumes are ordered into three sections. The earliest sets are from India, the next are from China, and the last and largest collection are Japanese. Only the first 10 volumes make up the first two sets. Many of the stories are Buddhist in nature. A large number of them, though not the ones we will be focusing on, are religious parables or stories with a highly Buddhist character. Indeed, the organization of the stories themselves is reflective, in its basic form, of the journey of Buddhism to Japan from its origins in the Indian subcontinent by way of China, and of the changes in how Buddhism is interpreted in each section. They provide an interesting reflection of the ways in which the religion morphed during its transition from India to China to Japan. But that's not what we're here to talk about, because not all the stories in the Konjaku Monogatari Shu are religious in nature. Some of them are just good old-fashioned folk tales. In fact, those are probably the best-known ones. For example, the best-known story in the Konjaku Monogatari-shu today is probably the story of Rajomon. This tells the tale of a young robber who hides out on top of the Rashou Gate outside Kyoto, only to find an old woman robbing corpses up there, so he decides to rob her in turn. This tale of amorality would prove rather inspirational to a young, disaffected writer of the early 20th century by the name of Akutagawa Ryunosuke, who would go on to write a Rashomon all his own. But of course, that's not the only famous one in there. There's also one of my favorites, the Maiden of Dojouji. This is the story of a woman, Kiyohime, and her lover, Anchin. Anshin eventually decides things are not going to work out, so he does the rational thing. He flees her, heads to a nearby river, and rides the ferry across, and then pays the ferryman not to carry Kiyohime over to the other side. So, pretty much ideal advice on how to handle a breakup there. And this would have worked, except for the fact that Kiyohime then did the natural thing and got so mad she turned into a giant snake and swam across the river. So Anchin was forced to take refuge in a nearby temple, Dojoji, where the monks protected him by hiding him beneath a sacred bell. There are, if you're curious, a couple of different ways the story ends. In the Konjaku Monagatari, one of the monks exercises Kiyohime by means of the power of the Lotus Sutra, probably the single most important work in the Mahayana branches of East Asian Buddhism. By means of its wisdom, her need for revenge is quenched, and she returns to her human form. In the much later Edo period work, the Ugetsu Monogatari, The Tale of Moonlight and Rain, Kiyohime breathes fire and melts both the monk trying to exorcise her and the bell with Anjin inside of it, which I personally think is a much better ending. Anyway, we're also not here to talk about that. Today, we're here to talk about the story of one of the recurring characters of the Konjaku Monogatari, Hakamadare. Hakamadare is a nickname. A hakama is a type of riding pant associated with the samurai class. It's still a part of the basic uniform today in kendo, naginata, kyudo, and aikido. The dare is derived from the verb tareru, meaning to droop. So, hakamadare would roughly translate to something like droopy pants. Absolutely nothing is given in the konjaku monogatari about who hakamadare is. No background, nothing beyond the fact that he is a thief and highwayman, who, by virtue of the fact that he leads other thieves and highwaymen, is probably pretty good at it. That makes it very hard to say whether he was even a real person. It is pretty clear that large chunks of the characters in Konjaku Monogatari were in fact made up. If nothing else, it's pretty unlikely that anyone has ever turned into a fire-breathing snake after a breakup, though certainly that would feel pretty believable in the moment. That said, there are particular tales in the Konjaku Monogatari, including the ones in which Hakamadare does appear, that include people who we know for a fact did exist. That suggests that perhaps there is some basis for this character in real life. You may recall, for example, that Shonagun's husband-slash-good-friend-slash-whatever-the-hell-they-were, Tachibana Norimitsu, makes an appearance in the Konjaku Monogatari. His story is the one where he's attacked by bandits and kills them in the night, but doesn't want to take credit for his victory because he fears drawing attention to himself. He definitely did exist, though that story is not verified anywhere else. Now again, both of the stories in which Hakamadare appears do involve someone that we know for a fact existed. The first one centers on a man named Fujiwara no Yasumasa. Yasumasa was, in fact, related by marriage to someone peripherally important to a recent episode we did. He was the second husband of a woman known to us as Izumi Shikibu. She is a fascinating character in her own right. She was a contemporary of Murasaki Shikibu and Seishonagon, and was a lady-in-waiting alongside Murasaki Shikibu at the court of Empress Seishi. However, the thing that I think is most fascinating about her is her love life. She had a series of extramarital affairs, including with two different imperial princes, that led her first husband to divorce her when they came to light. Her love letters to her paramours are actually the thing she's best known for. They're apparently so artistically beautiful that they were preserved down to this day. Fujiwara no Yasumasa was her second husband she remarried after this divorce, and naturally the one poem we have from her that is addressed to Yasumasa is actually just a coded poem addressed to a different lover, because that's just how Izumishikibu rolled. Really, at some point, I need to do an episode on the women of the Heian era, and she will feature very prominently in it, I promise. Anyway, we know Fujiwara no Yasumasa was her second husband. He was, by all accounts, a well-liked man of arts and letters as well, particularly known for his talent for music, especially his skill with the flute. In addition, and the name may have tipped you off here, Yasumasa was also a member of the powerful Fujiwara family. At the time, the Fujiwara really were the family of the aristocracy. They held a preponderant influence in government, with the greatest branch of the family dominating the powerful position of imperial regent, or Kampaku. Now, not every branch of the Fujiwara were courtiers in the imperial capital. Some had developed roots in the provinces and started to transition into what were beginning to be called buke, military families, the early form of the samurai class. However, Fujiwara no Yasumasa was not such a man. He was a courtier of the imperial capital through and through, though for reasons that will be shortly evident, he is described in the Konjaku Monogatari as being in no way inferior to a warrior in his bravery and his skill. In fact, this particular episode will net Yasumasa such a reputation that he will occasionally be employed by the imperial court later in positions traditionally reserved for warriors. So now we get to story time. Here is our first tale from a time now past of Hakamadare and Fujiwara no Yasumasa. I will quote from a translation at length. Quote, Now a long time ago there was in the world a great bandit called Hakamadare, He was a man without match in the realm, a bold of heart and great in strength, swift of foot, skilled of hand, and wise in judgment. His trade consisted of stealthily seeking his opportunity and robbing innumerable men of their possessions. It was about the tenth month, and he had need of a robe, so he went searching about in likely places with a view to laying his hands on some. It was midnight, and everyone was settled in sleep. The moon was drowned in cloud, and along the great highway was walking a man wearing plenty of clothes. He had on an elegant dress that seemed to be a silk hunting costume, and also a hakama that appeared to be sashinuki hitched up from the bottom by cords. He was all alone, nonchalantly strolling along and playing a flute. On seeing this, Hakamadare thought, good, good, here is a man made to order to provide me with some robes so he delightedly ran after him, intending to knock him down and strip off his clothes. But strange though it may seem, he felt that the man was somehow terrifying, and he went along with him for two or three hundred yards. As the man still went on playing his flute without any sign of being aware that someone was on his tail, Hakamadari decided to make an attempt and ran after him, making his footsteps loud. But when he noticed the man did not even look back while playing the flute, Hakamadari felt that he just could not do it, and so he ran and dodged away. He tried this many, many times, from this side and that, but since the man made no sign of being in the least agitated, Hakamadari went along with him for more than half a mile, thinking this must be an extraordinary man. But then saying to himself, I can't leave it at this, Hakamadari drew his sword and rushed at him. At this point, the man stopped blowing his flute, turned, and stood there. What kind of person are you? he asked. Now, to run after a mere man alone like this should not be such a terrifying thing, even though it might be if he were a devil or a god. But as regards this case, the hakamadare, how is it I've lost both heart and guts and feel frightened to death? It's not my fault I've been overwhelmed by this man. When the man asked again, What kind of person are you? The bandit realized that, try as he might, he probably could not make an escape, and so he answered, I am a clothes robber. My name, with respect, is Hakamadare. At that, the man merely replied, I have heard that in the world there is such a person called that. What an extraordinary rascal. Come along with me. And then he continued on the same way, playing his flute. Observing the composure of the man, Hakamadare felt fear and awe. He's not a mere man, he thought, as he went along with his senses numbed, as if he'd been overcome by a supernatural being. As they continued along, the man entered the gate of a big house, and when he went up on the porch, still wearing his shoes, Hakamadari realized that this must be the master of the house. The man went inside, then came out, and, calling Hakamadari over, gave him a thick cotton robe. From now on, when you need this sort of thing, come here, he said. Don't get into trouble by running after someone who is not disturbed with simple human feelings. Then he went inside, end quote. And that's the story, so you might be thinking, wait, what, this badass bandit got rumbled by someone who just intimidated him by playing the flute? Of course, this is an idea that is not without precedent. It reminds me, frankly, of nothing so much as a particularly famous episode from the slightly later Chinese work The Sangwuzhi, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, in which the famous strategist Zhuge Liang, surrounded in a city by an enemy army with no chance of victory, opens every gate to the city and sits atop the walls playing a musical instrument. A liar, if I remember correctly, though I could be wrong. The enemy commander, seeing this, is convinced that it must be some sort of devious trap, and so packs up his forces and leaves. Oh, I'm not falling for this. And that's one way to interpret this story and the one I personally intend to favor. Sometimes the smartest among us get so wrapped up in thinking about wheels within wheels within wheels that we tend to psych ourselves out. We ascribe tremendous significance to silly things, assuming that there must be some kind of complex chain of reasoning here, when in fact, often, the simplest explanation is the correct one. Sometimes, a man walking down the street playing the flute is just a man walking down the street playing a flute. The other, more common interpretation of this particular Hakamadate story has to do with some more mysticized ideas attributed traditionally in Japan to men of particular composure particularly with members of the samurai class, though, again, Fujiwara no Yasumasa was not one. Put simply, this is the idea that a man of particularly fierce resolve is capable of psyching out an opponent to such an extent that they lose the ability to resist effectively. That fighting, in other words, is a contest of will in which the person of greater will triumphs regardless of the circumstances. Thus, an armed bandit can be overcome by a man with a flute because the only thing that matters is the difference in their respective wills. One other fun fact to note about this particular story before we move on. Yasumasa may have had a relationship with his supposed attacker. His brother Yasusuke crops up in another Setsuwa collection, the Ujishui Monogatari from the 1200s, as, guess what, a bandit. From the records we have, Yasusuke appears to have gone on the lam after being involved in an unsanctioned street fight. One of his opponents in this fight lost part of his hand, and so Yasusuke fled the city of Kyoto, rather than answer for the damage his fight had wrought. And from there, he became a bandit to sustain himself. Supposedly, this noble-turned-bandit's favorite method of operation was the ambush. He would pretend to be injured or in need of assistance or whatever else, and then ambush and kill those who came to help him before robbing them of their valuables. For reasons you'll come to understand in a bit, this particular technique is also associated with Hakamadare, and that has led some to suggest that, in fact, Hakamadare was an alias for Fujiwara no Yasusuke, the brother of Fujiwara no Yasumasa, the man Hakamadare tried to rob. Which adds yet another layer onto the whole being mesmerized by your target thing. Certainly, I imagine that if I were trying to mug someone and that person turned out to be my brother, I'd be, to put it mildly, somewhat shocked. The theory identifying Fujiwara no Yasusuke as Hakamadare has enough traction that sometimes Hakamadare's name is given as Hakamadare Yasusuke, though again, the whole theory is pretty circumstantial. Anyway, it's time for our second tale of Hakamadare. This one, I will simply narrate to you. It happened once that Hakamadare was in prison, But upon the ascension of a new emperor to the throne, a general amnesty was announced, and he was released. Once out of prison, he had no possessions, and so decided to get some through good old honest labor. No, I'm kidding, he decided to rob some people. And if you're curious, by the way, yes, imprisonment was a thing during this period. It became increasingly uncommon during this period, as the Heian government adopted a different system of punishments from Tang Dynasty China the five punishments of tattooing, cutting off of the nose, cutting off limbs, castration, and execution. However, imprisonment did remain in use in some circumstances. Anyway, Hakamadari made his way to a checkpoint on the road to modern Osaka, and there he stripped naked and lay on the roadside, pretending to be dead. Passers-by would remark on this, after all this corpse had no visible wounds or illness or anything, but nobody wanted to be the one to investigate the body themselves for fear that there would be something strange or dangerous about it, say, a disease of some kind. Eventually, a samurai, well-armed and riding a horse of high quality, on his way down from Kyoto, happened by. He had an armed retinue of some size, as a high-ranking samurai naturally would. When the samurai noted the commotion around the body, he sent one of his attendants to go investigate. That attendant eventually returned, relaying the strange tale of the corpse with no wounds. At which point, the samurai ordered his men to gather back up and ride away. For this, he was mocked by the other passers-by. Only a coward would be frightened by a dead body, especially if you were surrounded by armed men of your own. What harm could possibly befall you in such a circumstance? Shortly thereafter, the novelty of it all having worn off a bit, the crowd dispersed, at which point a different samurai rode up to the body. He had no attendants or servants, only a basic set of weapons, a bow and arrow. This samurai rode up to the body, curious to investigate how the man died, and poked at it with his bow, at which point the corpse returned to life, and Hakamadari grabbed the bow, pulled the samurai from his horse, and stabbed him to death. He then proceeded to rob the samurai's corpse of all its valuables, before taking the horse and riding off. Hakamadare, knowing that many other bandits would have been released in this amnesty, found as many as he could round up, about 20 or so, and equipped them all with horses, weapons, and armor, using this very same trick. So the moral of the story is that it turns out, in fact, that the first warrior was not a coward, and the second one was not brave. In fact, the first one was smart enough not to take dumb risks to satisfy his own curiosity, instead of simply doing his duty. The second one was stupid enough to walk into an ambush. It later turned out, so the story goes, that the first warrior was none other than Taira no Sadamichi, a renowned warrior from whom many branches of the Taira family would later claim descent. Sadamichi, by the by, also appears more than once in the Konjaku Monogatari. In his other appearance, he is ordered by his master's brother, to kill a man for an insult, but refuses, because A, his master's brother is not, you know, his master, and B, the brother tried to give him this order in the middle of a social occasion, and really, that's just very rude. This is supposed to be a nice party. Why are you bringing up your vendettas, man? Just chill. However, when Sadamichi later meets the target of said vendetta, and said target later brags to him, Oh, it's a good thing you didn't accept that order, because if we fought, I 100% would have killed you. Well, naturally, Sadamichi then attacked him, killed him with an arrow, chopped his damn head off, and brought it back to his master's brother, because if you're going to do the dang thing, you might as well get credit for it. So clearly, at least in this story, a man who is not a coward, simply a man with a very clear sense of what his duty was. Here, too, the moral of the story is really more about the samurai than Hakamadare, specifically about this term, zanshin, that's still thrown around today in the Gendai Budo, Japan's modern martial arts. Basically, don't assume you understand a situation and let your guard down, because that's how you get stabbed to death by a highwayman for the crime of being curious. But in addition to being a story that basically curiosity killed the cat, this story does reveal a few interesting things about Hakamadare. First and foremost, it does lend some credibility to the whole Hakamadare is Fujiwara no Yasusuke theory, in that, if you'll recall, Yasusuke's favorite method of robbery was, wait for it, pretend to be injured and then ambush anyone who came to help. Now, again, that's a tenuous connection. This is not exactly some kind of super-secret rocket science move we're talking about here. You don't really need to be a genius to figure it out. But we are talking about two roughly contemporary figures, with similar styles of ambush attributed to them, so maybe? So what happened to our dear friend Hakamadare? Well, to put it simply, we don't know. He doesn't appear anywhere else in the Konjaku Monagatari Shu, or in any other contemporary Setsuwa tales from the period. The tales themselves do refer to him being a major bandit leader, the general of bandits is a term that gets thrown around a bit, so presumably his life of crime was a moderately successful one. But how did it end? We can't really be sure. If we accept the theory that Akamadare was Fujiwara no Yasusuke, then we have two differing accounts of what happened to him, both from later Setsuwa collections. Having finally drawn the ire of the Imperial government in a way he could no longer avoid, Yasusuke was cornered by Imperial troops and, depending on which version you believe, either he committed suicide to avoid capture, or he was imprisoned and dragged off, never to be released again. But again, that connection is built on some pretty tenuous foundations, though, to be fair, everything about Hakamadare is. So we have to take it with, like, not just a few grains, like an entire shaker of salt. As with many of the other characters of the Konjaku Monogatari Shu, his appearance in this collection did result in him entering the popular consciousness as a famous villain. He became a sort of stock villain character used in later media. This was particularly true of our older friend the Edo period mass media, with its propensity for taking historical figures from the Japanese past and blowing them up into these legendary badasses with, like, magic powers and super skills and all that fun stuff. One of these days, I'm going to do a whole episode on the history of popular culture in Japan, and the thesis of that episode is basically going to be that you can draw a pretty direct line from this kind of romanticized, over-the-top stuff in the Edo period, directly to things like the Samurai Warriors video games, Sengoku Basara, and other modern media where historical Japanese figures are portrayed as giant robots with laser eyes, or the literal incarnation of Satan, or whatever else. But I digress. Anyway, in the case of Akamadare, the most famous culprit of this romanticization was Utagawa Yoshitsuya, a woodblock printer from the early 1800s. If you have any interest in woodblock printing, you've probably heard the name Utagawa before, but the one you've heard of is almost certainly Utagawa Hiroshige. There was, in fact, a whole Utagawa school of woodblock printing, founded by Utagawa Toyoharu in the mid-1700s. Hiroshige was far and away the most famous student of that school, but there were many, many others, of whom Yoshitsuya was one. Like many other Utagawa school woodblock printers, Yoshitsuya focused his energies on depictions of the legendary warriors of old, images that were fanciful, brightly colored, and full of energy, and which depicted scenes and stories that your average buyer would have had at least some familiarity with from the aforementioned popularity of said stories in the mass media. In particular, Yoshitsuya made two well-regarded prints of Hakamadare. The first is entitled Battle of Minamoto no Yorimitsu and His Men with Hakamadare Assisted by a Giant Snake. It depicts a battle between Minamoto no Yorimitsu and his men, and Hakamadare Assisted by a Giant Snake. As we discussed way back in the day when talking about the weird legends that grew up around the idea of ninja, one of the ways Edo-era creators added some drama to stories was by giving one side or the other powers that were either seemingly or overtly supernatural. In particular, Thieves of Legend tended to get this treatment. Hakamadare's alliance with a giant serpent is one example. If you're wondering who Yorimitsu is, well, he's one of those guys who is often known by two names, either as Minamoto no Yorimitsu or as Minamoto no Raiko. Minamoto no Raiko is probably one of the most famous figures in Japanese folklore, and again, really, we should do a whole episode on him at some point. He was a 10th century warrior who helped establish the primacy of the Minamoto as a warrior clan, and whose exploits, stop me if you've heard this one before, became the stuff of legend. His men, meanwhile, are the four warriors who are described as Raikou's closest confidants and followers, who are similarly legendary but whose names I will not throw at you, at least not today. Raikou probably existed in real life, but did he actually slay demons in single combat, as is often said of him? Well, seems unlikely. His legendary status made him a natural figure for the classic genre mashup, thus here he is fighting one of Japan's great villains. And it does make for a compelling mashup, the badass warrior of legend versus the ruthless bandit chief. The other Yoshitsuya print depicting Hakamadare is similarly a face-off with another famous figure, this time another bandit named Kido Maru. Kidomaru is a far less attested-to historical figure. His legendary biography, so to speak, depicts him as a dropout from the Buddhist temple at Mount Hiei, who turned instead to a life of banditry and crime. So this time, we have a villain-versus-villain mashup. Kidomaru and Hakamadare are also depicted as in a contest, though this time a simple competition of magic, though not a battle, in a Tsukioka Yoshitoshi print from the early Meiji period. So in all three of these cases, you see Hakamadare facing down a foe in a contest or a battle of some kind, basically the Edo period equivalent of that classic debate, which would win in a fight the Enterprise or the Millennium Falcon. Anyway, today Hakamadare occasionally crops up in more modern media, especially anything set in the late to mid Heian period. In particular, a show called Garo features him, identified fully as Fujiwara no Yasusuke, as a regular character. I have not seen it, and thus cannot speak to its quality. So what do we learn from this deep dive into this character? Well, first, I think it's an interesting exploration of Setsuwa as a genre. You can really see the extent to which even the non-religious stories in the Konjaku Monogatari-shu are clearly teaching tools designed to explore clear lessons. First, about the power of strong will, and second, about the importance of keeping your guard up. This figure, Hakamadare, is also interesting himself in terms of exploring a part of the Heian era that doesn't usually make it into most discussions, crimes and criminality. Our record for the criminal justice system of the Heian period, as with everything else, is just not that good going that far back. Sources get harder and harder the further you go back, and in the case of the Heian period, that's particularly true when it comes to the banal stuff of administration rather than refined and more artistic stuff. Still, Hakamadare's case is a fun one for considering what we know about crime during this period. For example, it seems that bandits like him would have been able to operate relatively openly until eventually they drew the ire of the imperial government. This suggests a rather fragmented system of law enforcement where it's relatively easy for violent criminals to slip through the cracks and where the central government usually has to step in in some way. And that is, from what we can tell, true the oldest states that we've talked about before, the Shōen, did fragment law enforcement, not just the economy, as Shōen holders were responsible for managing enforcement on their own property. Finally, we see one more example of a character's history being expanded and built upon as part of a general growth of mass literacy, as we have seen so many times before. It's interesting to note that so much of what we identify with the historical characteristics of the Japanese past has far more to do with with conflations made between characters in the Edo period than what the records actually say of who a person is. That's how this figure, of whom we know so little, became, really, what he is today. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks, this week, to Dominic Lang, Kip Headley, and Kyle Wagner for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, Check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we will start a two-part series on the life and career of Oda Nobunaga.